Welcome to episode one of Beloved by God. I'm so grateful that you've joined us. Let me first affirm you by saying God believes that you're a masterpiece and a new creation in Christ Jesus. Having said that, do you believe it? More directly, do you believe in God? The answer to that question is the most important decision you'll ever make. The consequences have eternal implications. And even if you said a resounding yes, do people see Jesus in you? If it was a no, please keep listening. I'm Will, a grateful believer in Jesus Christ who was inspired to start this podcast to glorify God, inspire you, and help the lost find Jesus. Every week we'll open in prayer, hear a testimony, and teach a Bible lesson based on the testimony. Testimony is your unique story that can inspire someone to persevere, repent, and find Christ. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 1.8, And now the word of the Lord is ringing out from you to people everywhere. For wherever we go, we find people telling us about your faith in God. We don't need to tell them about it. You're the message. As this is an introductory episode, I've decided to be vulnerable and share my testimony. First, let us begin with a prayer from the heart. God, be glorified through this testimony of my life and the strength you've given me. I know firsthand that your power is made perfect in weakness, so may I boast only about your miraculous healing. You broke my heart of stone and placed a new spirit within me. Let that power shine through the darkness. Amen. Let us begin. My earliest memory is of smoke, deep and dark, entering my lungs. My eyes are burning as I walk into the kitchen, coughing. I want you to imagine the sound of a crackling fire in full blaze, but that fire is your entire home. I run into the bedroom and start shaking my father and brother. They're asleep in the bed. I'm conscious. For the first time in my life, I feel fear. I carry my newborn brother into the yard and watch my father fight to save our home. I see chairs and furniture being thrown from windows. I hear glass shattering. I don't know if dad is dead or alive. I've just turned four years old. Fire trucks pull up and rescue my father from inside our home. God says in Isaiah 43, When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. After losing our home, we began our exodus from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, to Covington. Shortly after my fifth birthday, my father begins a new job training police dogs. Dad takes my brother and I out to a private Schutzen club to help him train the canines. I can hear the dog handler shouting, Blieb! Faust! Giblaut! That's German for stay, bite, and speak. I place the bite sleeve over my arm, grip the pistol in my opposite hand, and run across the field while dogs pursue me. Mom sold her veterinary practice and started conducting malaria and AIDS research at Tulane Primate Center in Covington. I was so proud of how Mom funded her research through grant writing. She worked so hard for this. I'm often outside, sitting on the concrete walkway, watching the primates drink Gorge Gatorade and chew on biscuits. As a six-year-old, I've grown accustomed to being left alone a lot. I'm melting crayons against an old furnace, watching the wax drip onto the floor into a puddle. I find the warmth here comforting, and it's a distraction from the shouting in my parents' bedroom. I remember Mom screaming and Dowd shouting, becoming as ubiquitous as TV commercials. I begin running my fingers through the wax when mom is thrown through her bedroom door. When she stops crawling, she curls up into a ball on the kitchen floor, sobbing. I don't know what to do or say, so I try to hug her. 
She pushes me away. She doesn't want to be held. Looking back, I can't blame her, as pain makes people selfish. However, in the season, I internalized this as rejection and began to suppress feelings altogether. Have you ever been hurt or rejected by your own family? Isaiah 53.5 says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our inequities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Every day people roam this earth, rejecting the very one who created them, choosing instead something, someone, or self. Pastor John Wimber says, Show me where you spend your time, money, and energy, and I'll tell you what you worship. We were unchurched my entire childhood. We didn't even show up for Christmas or Easter services. In fact, I cannot ever recall having a meaningful conversation with my parents about faith. As a six-year-old, I attended my first sleepover, where I watched the animated movie All Dogs Go to Heaven. I cried so hard that my parents had to come get me, as I was introduced to heaven and hell. I couldn't conceptualize or reconcile places outside of my physical realm. It felt foreign and frightening to me. Shortly after turning seven, my mom poured my brother and I some orange soda and said, Your father and I are getting a divorce. I cried, but honestly, these were tears of joy as much as sorrow, which is hard to write. The divorce wasn't amicable. Both my parents expressed hatred for one another. I felt like a pawn stuck between an opposing king and queen. The next six years were very challenging for me. I was physically, sexually, and verbally abused during this time. I was exposed to and using pornography and alcohol before my 12th birthday. My parents remarried, which caused me to live in many different places. My anger then turned inward, into a deep depression. My mother placed me in counseling when my teachers reported the disturbing things I was writing and drawing at school. As a teenager, I reconnected with my father, who had purchased a home on Lamarck Street in Mandeville. His house was on the border of a black neighborhood, park, and church. My brother and I wanted friends, so we ventured into the park. At first, we were met with suspicion and misunderstanding, often causing my brother and I to fight with other boys. But over time, we were accepted, befriended, and cared for by this black community. Tyler and Lattimore would become our lifelong friends. Lattimore moved in with my family when he was a teenager. Mom loved him so much treated him like one of us, and would ask him what he wanted for Christmas and his birthday because he would be there. Some of my fondest memories are during the season of life, where we adventured and explored all day. Bikes gave us an astounding amount of freedom, as my parents didn't care where we went as long as we made it home by evening. Some days, we would bike over 50 miles along the St. Tammany Trace, traveling to Slidell and Abita for fun. Tyler was a gifted musician who played drums and piano for his church worship team. When he invited me to church, I accepted, but then realized I didn't know what to wear or how to act in a church. Pastor Winston spoke with such conviction and would often finish his sermons with, God loves you, and so do I. If you showed up late, the usher would lock you out of the church until worship was over. The music was incredible at Morning Star Baptist Church. I saw the Spirit moving here through the people. Services would last three to four hours and were always followed by a fellowship meal. I'd sway back and forth, mouthing words to songs I'd never heard before. Tyler's mother, Gretchen, took pity on me and tried her best to teach me how to dance and keep beat to the music. To this day, the only rhythm I have is circadian. By this time, my mother and stepfather were unapologetically atheist. I grew up hearing that churches were corrupt 
and that Jesus was merely a mythical character. I wasn't encouraged to attend church, but I kept going. I didn't see this at Morningstar. I saw the body of Christ loving one another in community. I saw people prophesy, speaking in tongues, interpreting, and even laying on of hands. I realized that there is great debate within churches around these spiritual gifts. After all, humans are flawed and self-promoting. In Acts 9, 10 through 12, it says, In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him in a vision, Ananias! Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he was praying. In a vision he had seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. This is a supernatural power given to Ananias to heal Saul, who was renamed Paul the biggest contributor of books in the New Testament. Before I could dismiss these spiritual gifts as blasphemy, comical, or heretical, I learned to look at who is glorified by the actions. If I dismissed all the abilities of believers using spiritual gifts, I am really dismissing the Spirit's power altogether. Good trees bear good fruit, and bad trees bear bad fruit. I learned discernment through reading about Holy Ghost power and asking questions. Our senior year, Tyler and I were playing football, running track, and competing with one another. We wanted to play college football together, but that dream would be cut short. It was January 4th of 2003 at 5 a.m. when a friend called me and shared that Tyler was killed in a car accident. I was absolutely devastated, angry, and I didn't know how to process this grief. Tyler's death impacted our entire community. Gretchen lost her son, Morningstar lost a gifted disciple, and I lost my best friend. His funeral had a few thousand people in attendance. I was asked to speak in front of this crowd, and I didn't know what to say. My outline was covered in tears and sweat. I couldn't even read the words I had written. I just opened my mouth and spoke from the heart, putting on a brave face for his family. The weekend after his funeral, I had a wrestling tournament in Lake Charles. However, I really didn't want to go. My grief turned into deep conviction, knowing my team would lose without me, and I believed Tyler was watching me from heaven. I knew no one who faced me that day would be able to beat me. I was wrestling with such determination that I would rather die than give up. I beat a state champion that day and brought home the championship medal to Gretchen. For months, I would visit Gretchen, and we would share a meal together every Monday night. She and I would work together to memorialize the park on the Mark Street, having it dedicated to her son in his name. We collected thousands of signatures and were successful in this goal. Gretchen showed so much strength in this season, but even great things cannot last. She had obligations and I had to get ready for college. I stayed in the anger stage of grief, blaming God for taking Tyler from me for years. I walked away from the church during this time. My love of God was transactional because my faith was weak waning and unauthentic. I knew of Jesus, but I didn't know him, just as much as I knew of Steve Jobs, but didn't know him personally. Matthew seven twenty one through 23 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. When I left home for college, I became further isolated in my sin. I would stay in my room, depressed, drinking, and escaping into pornography and video games. 2005 was a year riddled with anxiety and uncertainty. My brother was deployed to Iraq. Hurricane Katrina destroyed my family's home, 
and Tulane University was underwater. We lost every material possession we owned, except a box of old photographs in our vehicles. I was playing college football for Tulane. It was my only outlet for the anger I was experiencing. I spent the next year at Louisiana Tech with my teammates, while our university in New Orleans was being repaired. The incredible staff at Louisiana Tech let us stay in a dormitory that had been recently scheduled for demolition. There were no working elevators, and my room was on the 12th floor. I never had to skip leg day, because it was impossible given the 144 stair climb to my bedroom. I returned to Tulane in 2007, ready to graduate college when my long-term high school girlfriend cheated on me. I spiraled further into alcoholism and stopped going to class after our breakup. This was my senior year, the final stretch, and I wanted to give up. A friend of mine moved in with me and cared for me during this time. By the grace of God, I did enough to graduate with a degree in business and move back home where I started looking for a career. When I returned home, my mother's health had deteriorated. She was taking over 15 prescription drugs a day, often falling asleep mid-sentence. She would complain about debilitating body pain, was terrified for my brother in Iraq and coping with painkillers. I would often pick her up and carry her to her bedroom, where she would pass out. I was looking for a career, but in the meantime, I worked at an electronics retailer. I remember the first time I met Jess at work. I was enamored with her. On our first date, she said, If we are going to get serious, you must be okay with our future kids going to church. I said sure, because I would have said anything to be with her. After six months of dating, we decided to move in together. Our relationship was fun, spontaneous, but also incredibly challenging. I was still using pornography, drinking regularly gaming excessively, and being irresponsible. Jess was from a troubled family as well, having lost her father to alcohol at an early age, and her sister was an addict. We didn't talk about God, go to church, or really communicate in that manner. During this time, my mother had to be hospitalized for her addiction. My only comfort was Jess, who stood by my side. I was growing discouraged, having putting in applications everywhere. I wanted a career and to be managing people, because that's where I felt confident. I was blessed with a great job and started my career off managing a team overnight for a Fortune 100 company. I transitioned into multiple roles before reaching general manager. As a high achiever with perfectionist tendencies, I never felt satisfied with where I was. This spilled over into my relationships. After four years of dating, I felt the desire to marry Jess. I proposed to her at Epcot in front of the Mexican restaurant during the fireworks show at Disney. Like my lack of rhythm, I wasn't smooth about this. I shouted, Ow! My leg! Bent down and popped up with a ring. We were married on October 16th of 2010 in Covington at Annadell's Plantation. My career took off, so we ended up moving to Monroe for a promotion. We were both isolated in Monroe, as we were five hours from our closest family and friends. We tried to find some sort of community here and attended a few church services which fell flat. After two years in Monroe, Jess became pregnant with our first son. We had made a few friends by this time, but overall, were longing for family. When our son was just three months old, we moved to Lafayette for another promotion with a job where I would be managing 400 people. I was highly stressed, fighting a lot with Jess, and not adjusting well to parenthood. My health continued to deteriorate. I sought treatment with a cardiologist, rheumatologist, gastroenterologist, and more. Basically, if your job title had IST in it, I was seeing you. I would think I was having a stroke and go to the emergency room for them to show me a brain scan that would show otherwise. 
In 2014, God directed us to an incredible church in Lafayette after trying a few others. My wife and I immediately felt welcomed, connected, and convinced we had found our church family. I remember leaving the services encouraged, and on 6-13-2015, I was baptized. The irony is that my own parents would not see me be baptized, but two gay friends showed up. In 2016, I was treated for Lyme disease from a tick that had been attached to me in 2005. You see, during Hurricane Katrina, we were cleaning up the remains of our home and showering very infrequently post-storm. One evening in 2005, I had to remove a dead tick that was sticking out of my abdomen. I didn't think much of it at the time. My mom had every intention of analyzing this tick under a microscope, but lost it in a sealed envelope. Lyme disease explained all the bizarre and degenerative health issues I had faced for over 10 years. By God's mercy and months of significant antibiotics, I was cured. In 2017, Jess and I welcomed our second child to the family. Three months later, my sister-in-law gave birth to our niece, who we would take in almost immediately. My sister-in-law struggled with addiction, and the baby's father was incarcerated. She was born with fetal alcohol syndrome and required constant attention. Jess and I did our best to keep it together, but we couldn't function or parent well. We both learned what a new level of sleep depravity looked like and realized our own limitations. My mom would move in with us for a few weeks to allow us time to sleep and get some reprieve. After five months of keeping our niece, we had to make a decision if we would adopt her full-time or give up custody. My wife's fears were realized when her sister started making death threats and accusations of us kidnapping her baby. We also knew that the baby's father would be released from prison and that she wouldn't be safe with us. We decided it was best for her to be adopted out to a family that could care for her properly. Even though I know my wife made the right decision for the baby and us, at the time, this drove a wedge of resentment between us. I had bonded significantly with my niece over six months and felt like I was giving away my daughter. I felt I wasn't enough to take care of her, keep her safe, and didn't measure up. I internalized our inability to raise her as a personal failure. I developed a dependence on a terrible anti-anxiety medication, mixed that with some alcoholism, and started an emotional affair that would amplify over time. On April 1st of 2018, I told my wife I couldn't live with her anymore, that I felt nothing for her. I didn't even say goodbye to our children who were sleeping. I had abandoned them in the night, like a coward. I was trying to fill a God-shaped hole in my heart by pursuing all forms of debauchery. Out of the home, I spent nearly $100,000 to fuel my insanity, but nothing satisfied me. King Solomon talks directly about this in Ecclesiastes 2, verses 10 and 11. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. One afternoon, I was placing our oldest son into his car seat when he looked at me and said, Dad, go to your car. Go to your house. You hurt me and Mom. I don't want to see you anymore. I cried the entire walk back to my car. It absolutely broke me. That night, I would drink an entire bottle of liquor and eat an entire bottle of pills to end it all. I cried out to God, death or life, you choose. I had sinned against my wife, children, friends, family, church, and was blasphemous towards the Lord by putting him to the test. What I didn't realize is that God wouldn't let me die that night. I would have to face myself and be accountable to what I had done. My heart had been fractured, 
and I had a deep desire for repentance. Dozens of people had been praying for me to see the nature of my sin and for God to intercede. Pastor Sean had breakfast with me and said, Will, God wants you to come home. My heart of stone had been shattered. I had finally reached the end of myself. The next week, Jess sent me a text message that said, If a miracle could save our marriage, would you consider it? I said yes and ended up going to focus on the family Hope Restored Retreat in Branson, Missouri. There I saw my wife as my friend, not my enemy. Our counselor talked a lot about being on the same team and taught us tools to communicate with. This was the beginning of a long road to restoration. For us to rebuild our relationship, I needed to fully disclose all I had done and be willing to take full accountability for my actions. Regretfully, I didn't do that in Missouri. Fear kept me from being fully transparent. I believed the lie that if I was honest, I would lose my wife. The opposite was true, as a relationship built on a lie is like building a house on sand. Only the truth would set me free. After lots of prayer, boundary setting, and counseling, I moved home at the end of 2018. I fully disclosed my spending and my affair. My wife was significantly wounded from the betrayal trauma and the mess I had made. When I was out of the home, she extended nothing but love to me, stating that God firmly told her to wait. Now that I was home, it would be the most challenging part of our marriage for over two years. We called this stage of our marriage the misery stage. Jess had every biblical reason to divorce me, but she didn't. She also didn't put a wishbone where her backbone was. She set very strict boundaries that weren't there before I left to prioritize her and our children's safety. I slept in our guest room for months, and we fought a lot. Some days, I would say insensitive things, or she would respond in anger. We weren't fighting fairly. I consistently crossed strict boundaries that my wife had set. I was still using pornography to cope and blame my wife for our lack of intimacy. Even with my change of heart, the devil had a hold on my mind. To combat this, I began reading the Bible, books on sexual addiction, and spending hours undergoing EMDR trauma therapy. Paul says in Romans 7.23, But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. We decided to do a weekend retreat in Baton Rouge put on by the Catholic Church called Retrovi. While there, an elderly woman walked up to my wife between sessions and said, God told me to come over here and tell you to wait on the Lord. This was scripture that God had placed on my wife's heart for months. This was confirmation that we were in the right place and that God was for us as a couple. At Retrovi, we learned more about our fear cycle and adopted routines around having deliberate and meaningful dialogue with one another every day. I began to regularly attend Celebrate Recovery meetings where I started to work the 12 steps and biblical principles. When I reached step three, I was finally ready to submit my life to Jesus Christ's care and trusted His will to turn me into a new creation. I wanted true freedom from the addictions that had plagued my life for over 27 years. I decided to cut down our generationally cursed family tree and plant some new life in its place. Joshua 24.15 says, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. In 2019, I attended the Celebrate Recovery Hope Restored Summit in Tennessee. After leaving the summit with a new understanding, I began helping run a chapter of Celebrate Recovery at a local church. My church had a branch, but I still had too much pride to attend because I would know people. I was content being a small group leader, occasional speaker, and helping navigate the ministry at another church. It was a lot of hard work and dedication. 
At church on May 26 of 2019, our pastor started explaining upcoming mission trips to Alaska, Guatemala, and Haiti for 2020. When he said Alaska, I stood up like I was hit by electricity and walked over to the table promoting Alaska missions. I signed up the following year and landed in Nome, Alaska on 312 of 2020. This was peak COVID-19 outbreak, so we were the last flight into Nome before the airport started shutting down. That year, over 75% of the volunteers canceled last second or couldn't make their connecting flights. The original reason for us going to Alaska was to support a girls' basketball tournament, which would raise money annually for the Bering Sea Women's Group. This tournament was canceled, but God knew what he was doing with us there. The 25% of us that made it helped manage the Iditarod Sled Dog Race. In addition, I found a place to volunteer at night in Nome called The Nest, or Nome Emergency Shelter Team. For six of the coldest months of the year, they opened the Carmen Center of Nazarene Church to keep homeless residents from freezing to death. I would go on patrol at night looking for people to find them and help them make their way back to the nest. Shoney, the community outreach manager, worked there seven days a week and was truly the hands and feet of Jesus. Each night, we would set up 60 beds and feed anyone who showed up hungry. Some of the people were strung out, argumentative, or physically hurt. Our job was to love them where they were and show them Christ-like compassion. One night, a teenage girl tried to take her life with some shoestrings. I had to physically remove them from her neck, where I found her unresponsive at the staircase. In that moment, I knew why God had sent me to Alaska. The Inuit and Eskimo people of Nome were incredibly welcoming of us. Around midnight, two women stood up and started to sing John 3.16 in their native dialect of Inuvik. It was beautiful. I managed to take a flight home out of Nome to make it home on March 21st of 2020, which was truly a miracle as everything was shut down. Walking through the New Orleans airport, it was eerie. It was almost completely empty. COVID had shut down the Celebrate Recovery chapter I was volunteering at in 2020. I then decided to swallow my pride and jump into my home church's recovery group. In early 2021, I became the men's ministry leader and have been serving faithfully ever since. We've seen the ministry grow to nearly three times the size over the last two years. God convinced me to provide childcare for this service, as my wife benefited greatly from this when I was out of the home and away. In 2021, God convinced me to reconcile my relationship with my mother. I was able to pay for her, my stepfather, and two nephews to visit Asheville, North Carolina for a week with my family. We sat outside watching fireflies on the porch at night and spent most days traveling in the mountains together. Two weeks after we returned from Carolina, I received a phone call from my stepfather that my mother was unresponsive. Mom was just 65 when she passed away. It's a sunny day and I could see my brother is a mess. I hold him while he sobs and take the cross off my neck and put it around his. It's August 15th of 2021 at 9.57 a.m. when my mother is taken off of life support. As mom takes her last breath, Her beautiful brown eyes open, and I'm immediately comforted with waves of peace that can only be described as supernatural. I knew in that moment that mom was with Jesus, but how? How could my mother, an atheist, be with Jesus? In October, my stepfather hosted a farewell party for my mother. He insisted that we arrive early and collect anything meaningful from her home that was hers. I spent hours digging through old boxes of photographs. In fact, it was the very one that survived Hurricane Katrina. At the bottom of the box, buried under thousands of pictures, is a Bible, and tucked inside is a baptism certificate from St. James Episcopal Church in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. On April 6, 1985, my mother and father had me baptized. 
Turns out my mother was a believer in Jesus most of her life, but never shared this with us. Jesus let me in on her secret when she passed, so this physical evidence was icing on the cake. I believe without a shadow of a doubt that her heart was hardened, but she had faith as small as a mustard seed. In 2022, God convicted me to start a Bible ministry that distributes Bibles in high-crime neighborhoods in third-world countries like Uganda. To date, we've distributed over a thousand Bibles. My goal is to distribute over a million Bibles in my lifetime. In October of this year, we will start ramping up distribution, so please pray for this ministry. In 2023, God put it on my heart to start this podcast because our stories matter to Him. I now have five years of sobriety from alcohol and drugs. I have over two and a half years of sobriety from all forms of pornography. Most importantly, I have a strong connection with Jesus and God has restored my marriage. My wife and I now are helping couples in crisis because God has made our marriage strong. In October 16th, we just celebrated 13 years of marriage with our children at the beach. I'm the father I was designed to be, and I'm fighting desperately for my marriage every day with strong accountability and guardrails. My niece is thriving, hitting all milestones despite her fetal alcohol syndrome. My sister-in-law has since passed away from her addiction, and her father passed away in prison. It's never too late to believe in Jesus. It's never too late to say, God, use me. If King David was made in God's image and forgiven for committing adultery and murder, I am forgiven too. The only thing that matters is who he says I am and who he says you are. I'll end with my life verse, Ezekiel 36, 26-28. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you, and you will move to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave to your ancestors. You will be my people, and I will be your God. Friends, thank you so much for listening. My prayer is that you continue to come back to hear other stories of faith. I ask that if you like what you heard, to tell a friend and please subscribe to our podcast. If you want to support this podcast, you can visit our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash beloved by God. God bless you. God loves you. And so do I.